0: Good morning, and welcome to chapel. We've been really spoiled lately being able to um, host a lot of great voices on campus, helping us along in our, in our faith understanding and in our walk. Um, and we're gonna, I'm going to introduce one of those voices again this morning in just a minute. Um, another opportunity coming up in the coming week um, Our next First Monday Speaker Series is uh, Dr. Rick Watts, who will be coming in next Monday. He will actually lead the gift service on Sunday night, and then speak again Monday morning. I'm super excited um, that Rick is going to be here. He was the most influential voice in my life going through seminary, and I would like to be like him when I grow up. So um, really, really encourage you to make that a priority on Monday, um, to be able to listen to Dr. Watts talks. His first one in the morning will be four voices, two vistas, one person why understanding: the shape of the Gospels is imperative for the Christian life. And now, for our introduction for our speaker this morning, today we welcome Dr. Jeff Cuse, uh, professor of Christian Ministry, Theology, and Culture at Seattle Pacific University. Um, Dr. Cuse has been here leading the um, youth ministry conference that we had yesterday. As you saw, many um, many faces from the community come and join us on campus. For that, youth ministry is cultural engagement. Um, I got to sit in on, on both the sessions that he taught on yesterday, and it was wonderful to hear um, an incredible intellect, an articulate voice, and a passionate heart um, for youth and, and the importance and place of this within ministry. Um, you can see the official bio at the top in, in italics, his own um, self-introduction on Twitter at the bottom. So would you please... Join me in welcoming Dr. Jeff Hughes.
1: Well, good morning. It's great to be here. Um, And I was telling Aaron a little bit earlier that I was, when you get to a new area, you're always trying to find out, at least for me, where do you get coffee? And so I had a wonderful journey across your campus today trying to find a place to get coffee. And so if anybody wants recommendations, um, don't ask me because I got lost. Um, so, so, but I'm, I'm doing well. I'm not caffeinated, but I'm doing well this morning. Uh, will you pray with me as we get started? I want to um, lift up God's Word this morning and we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3 together. Um, a, a verse in and in a section of Scripture that I think is overly familiar as a lot of scripture is today, where we have become so familiarized through media, through the way in churches have talked about it, that things that become so familiar we forget to look at. And so I want to take a deeper look at this passage together. And so let's pray and ask the Lord's anointing for this passage today. Uh, Gracious God, we ask that as we look at your holy word today, that you would fall freshly upon us, open our hearts, our minds, and our eyes to see you anew. Lord, from wherever we're coming right now, from classes, from uh, meetings, that you would open us up from those things and to fall afresh upon your word as a living word for us this day. Bind your word to our hearts, Lord, with hoops that are tighter than steel, that they may become for us a lamp unto our feet, a guide unto our way. Awaken in us your calling through it and convict us, Lord, anew. We ask this in your name. Amen. So let's listen together for God's leading as we read uh, from Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version this morning. And now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden." But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. So in this very famous interchange where the man and the woman, in the Hebrew, the ish and ishah, the man and the woman who are moving in the garden in the fullness of the day, ...are part of this grand creation story that has become so familiar to us. God encountering in powerful ways the movements and the creation of all things. And as the man and the woman come, this event happens. This past month, many of you um, were probably hit with some news from Apple Corporation in Cupertino, California... That not only was there a new iPhone in the offing, but also U2, in the graciousness of their heart, decided to fill up everybody's data with a new album they didn't ask for. Um, U2 has since, um, as a band, um, scratched their head and asked, why is it that 500 million people on the planet weren't excited about getting a new album from us? Well, part of it has to do with, well, Grandpa, I don't know if we really want a U2 album in our life right now. But there's also this misunderstanding as far as what this free gift really meant to people. Um, I don't know how many of you read The Onion, the the fake news source. But in The Onion, there was a a recent story about this event that went like this. And the the headline was this. Apple releases brief fleeting moment of excitement. And then the article goes like this. With this groundbreaking new release, Apple has completely revolutionized the way we experience an ephemeral sense of wonder, lasting no longer than several moments. Even before today's announcement, people across the country were lining up to be among the first to get their hands on this short-lived and non-renewable flash of satisfaction. And they won't be disappointed. This already vanishing glimmer of pleasure is exactly what we expect from Apple. And in this this ad, it's this idea that basically as consumers, we live always for the next big thing, the next flash, the free album. And then we start telling everybody that's happened. And then five minutes later, that's old news. Then we'll go on to the next thing, the new iPad, you know, the new computer system, the new game that's going to be released, the new album that's going to drop. And it's always this brief, ephemeral moment of excitement that happens and we grasp for it. And as soon as we get it, we want the next thing. And we move on and on and on like this. And we live in a culture of constant change and movement, seeking something that will excite us, awaken us out of this stupor and this boredom that we feel, to just shake us. And we want it so desperately in our lives. And this is not new. This brief, fleeting moment of excitement has been part of Western culture for centuries um, the Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard... You know, ...talked a lot about the way that the culture that he was experiencing... ...at his time amidst the Industrial Revolution... ...as people were moving away from agrarian cultures... ...moving into cities and becoming tools and factories... ...ceasing to be men and women, children, housewives... ...men who were, who were known for their name and their legacy... ...they were now being known for their ability to pull a lever... ...push a button shovel something in the ground. They were tools in the Industrial Revolution. And Kierkegaard, seeing this, saw that society in Western culture was moving into what he called a sickness unto death. This melancholy and malaise as people just groaned through their days over and over with this gross repetition, unable to lift their heads up and to see anything worth living for other than the next groaning moment that they had to do. And this sickness unto death kind of poured over Europe at the time, and Kierkegaard kept poking at it and saying, do you people understand what you've become and what's happening? A contemporary, uh, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, famously wrote that human beings are bent in their souls towards a will to power. That because the God that Europe had been worshipping at the time had become so distant, so away from every cause and very ready-at-hand experience of people, That all we have left as human beings is merely to will our lives into being. That God's not going to show up. God's not going to give us direction. God's not going to provide for us in any marriageable way. So what's left for us in this age? To push with all your effort. To put your shoulder behind the wheel. Manifest destiny. Pragmatism. Work until you drop. And that's all you have left to do. Effort. The will to make it happen. And this bent towards the will to power that Nietzsche talks about is all we have left in society, according to him. Because human beings, left to their own devices, that's all they'll do. They'll will their lives into being. Now, they'll tell you that maybe something else is going on. Maybe they've prayed about it. Maybe they've discerned something. But in their heart of hearts and how they practice their lives, it's about willpower in the end. Their checkbook is the most important thing in their life. Their career choices are the most important thing in their life. Who they are going to marry and get them to that status point on a status ladder... ...is the most important thing. These are willful things, willful pushes that people will bend themselves to. And Nietzsche in his cynicism of the time... ...but accurately and prophetically naming something he was seeing in society like Kierkegaard was... ...is people had ceased to understand where God was in the equation... Cease to trust God in the midst of their lives. To seek God's discernment. And left to their own devices would just exhaust the batteries of their souls pushing through for a life that was only as big as they are. And there is our melancholy. There is our depression. There is our sickness unto death. And there we are left with only a will to power to get us through to the next day. Now what we face here this morning as we look at Genesis is that we are not meant to be people of will to power. That is not our calling. That is not what you were created to be. You are unique, unrepeatable miracles of God. From the fullness of time and the completeness of time, you were created for more than merely willing the next day into being. You are more than merely muscling through the melancholy of your life and just hoping something better, some ephemeral moment of excitement happens at the next moment. You are meant for more than that. So much more. We are not children of darkness at our core. That is not our calling. And if the culture and the media tell you that is your destiny, you are listening to lies. For the God of the universe who is speaking to us from the very beginning of our canon of scripture is bending us towards a reality that we need to see and be very attentive to. What we see in Genesis is this question. This is the framing theme I want to kind of put on us today, and I'm going to give you some bullet points that I want to talk through for the rest of our time. And my theme on, on the, for this talk is this, that to be human is to be framed by good questions that shape the way we encounter God, other people, in the world. Let me say it again. That to be human, at our core, not a will to power, not a sickness under death, not a melancholy, not, tr- not some brief, ephemeral you know, moment of excitement. No, to be human is to ask grand questions before God that will shape us as we encounter God, other people, in our world. To be human is to ask really good questions and wait for God's response. Now, why do I frame it around questions as opposed to answers? And we'll, we'll, let, me, let me peel that back and let me say that we'll see what God does with us in a minute. So first of all, let's go back to our text in Genesis 3. Let me, let's open it up a little bit more. So the context... So Adam and Eve, okay, Ish and Eshah, the man and the woman in Hebrew, um, are in the garden. And what do we know about the creation narrative? God, in peeling back time and in, in the creation of everything, we have light even before the sun is created. We have this, this blowing into everything, separate into categories, the firmament of the ground, the oceans, the, the things that crawl on the ground, the things that swim at the sea... And the, and the universal theme that weaves through all of this creation narrative in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 is this word Tov in Hebrew, good. It is good. The earth is good. The water is good. The things that crawl on the ground, good. No mention of platypus because they're kind of freaks. But, but, but a lot of everything else, good, okay? Um, and human beings, very good, okay? There's a goodness in, that is core to who we are. Um, that is is key to understanding what what happens next. And then when we get to Genesis 3, we have this interchange with the serpent, uh, this temptation narrative, and as they partake of this temptation of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are stripped bare before God and for all creation. And God, in in verse 9 of, of chapter 3, says this. Where are you? The first audible question... That we have to humanity in our canon of scripture is that question Where are you? And for my money, this is the question. Everything that follows in the 66 books that constitute our canon of scripture are in some way framed by the echoes shooting down the canyon of time of that question Where are you? It is the question that should be ringing in your head almost every day, as we are going to see. Where are you in relation to God? Where are you relation to your neighbor? Where are you in relation to the world? Are you here? Do you understand where you are in relation to these things? Well, so let's break this out. And let me kind of take those three words apart. Now in Hebrew, uh, the term Achaia is, is one, right? It's just one phrase that we have there for where are you. But we're going to break it out into three in the English translation of where are you. And take each one in, in steps. So let's begin with where. Where is a question... As it says, which the place that you are matters. The place where you are matters. There's an old saying in real estate, real basic one, that the three most important things in real estate are these, and you probably know them. Location, location, and what's the third one? Location. Location, 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 right? Everything kind of happens on that point. Um, and, and location matters immensely to the value of property, Right? Where you are matters immensely. And what we have here is a, is, a, is a key question about location. So as a professor, location matters to me too. Um, two, month, two yeah, spring quarter it was spring quarter uh, last year. We have spring skiing in, in the Northwest where I'm from. right? So snowboarders love spring skiing because the snow's gotten a little bit you know, crystalline. It's great for snowboarding. And uh, it was early spring quarter. And a student uh, emailed me, as students do, and say, you know, Dr. Cuse, I'm really sorry. I can't make it to class today because I'm feeling sick. And say, said, like, oh, okay, great. hope you feel better. Uh, we'll, you know, get, get notes from somebody in class. Let's see. Well, here's the problem with having a professor who's also on Facebook and also a friend of a student on Facebook. Okay, now you know where this is going, right? <laughs> so, uh, so the student then, um, you know, that day, as I'm in my office, I'm checking my Facebook feed. He's having, some, having, obviously, a great time snowboarding that day. You know, he's, uh, he's got some pictures up there. He's got a selfie with his board. He's having a really great day. Okay, no sign of fever at all. This miraculous healing that seemed to happen was really incredible. Um, and so, you know, on Wednesday, he comes to class, and it's just a really basic interchange. I go, hey, Brandon, how are you doing? He goes, oh, yeah, I'm doing much better, thanks. And then I just spin my laptop and go, it looks like you were doing great, actually. <laughs> um, and, location matters. I mean, he's telling me he's in one place, but the reality is he's in a different place. And that location created dissonance in our relationship. The place where he said he was was not the place that he was. The question of where is huge in scripture. Land is big. For reading the Old Testament canon... ...the land where Israel is wandering... ...and trying to locate is massive. And two key words that we hear in Psalm 137... ...about location are very key... ...as far as the wilderness wanderings of Israel. One word that is used for location is po in Hebrew... ...which is a GPS location of a physical proximity of a place. This place I am here. I'm standing here right now at Dort College on the stage in chapel okay this physical location right but another word that we have in Hebrew 137 about location um, is hinini great great word you got to say that cuz it's just so fun to say hinini. hinini 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 in Hebrew literally means here i am very different proximity right not this kind of sense of a physical space but location is based upon relationship and god's sense of where ...is where God is, is the where that's most important in the equation. All right, One of the theorists that I, that I do some work with and do reading of... ...is an MIT um, psychologist by the name of Sherry Turkle. And for those of you who were at um, our conference yesterday... Um, ...I mentioned a little bit about her work. Turkle has done a lot of work on social media and kind of the interaction of human psyches and developments around how we use our social media, how we use Twitter, how we use Instagram. And one of the phrases that she uses is called the tethered self. The idea that human beings now, because our interfaces with our smartphones, um, we may be physically sitting next to each other here, but as you disassociate from my talk, which brain theorists will tell you probably happens, already happened probably about two minutes ago, um, is that you know you're kind of like, okay, that was good for, but now I'm gonna check out, I'm gonna go down, right? I'm gonna go just look in my lap. It's amazing how Christian people feel are these days, because they'll have something in their lap, everybody thinks they're praying, but no, they're they're looking at their phones. And <laughs> and, um, and, and and so and so as they do that, the disassociation that takes place as you're checking social media feed, checking a text, checking email, is your tethered self is now tethered to a relationship thousands of miles away, a mile away, maybe in the next block, maybe in the next dorm. And even though you physically may be next to somebody, you are actually outside your body in another space. And that that expansion of who we are in our psyche has changed developmentally how we understand our sense of self. This is why um, I had one colleague who was um, really made kind of some really snide comments in a class um, you know, about Twitter and saying, ah, this is the stupidest thing, why would anybody bother? And a student in the back of the class raised his hand and said, but you do know that Twitter's about people, right? I mean, there's people that are tweeting these things. And, and, and the, the dawning moment for this faculty member was he hadn't even put the idea that these people are talking to each other. He just saw it as these blinking diodes and these, these fancy glittering things, but hadn't thought about the fact that people were making relationships, connecting, talking, building you know, common interests, creating social conversations. Sure, there's a lot of fluff on BuzzFeed, okay? That's fine. But there are also great ways that people are connecting through these things that are building great relationships. And that where is something to take, a, take, a, take seriously. Now in verse 9, when God is asking this where question, he is asking the question about where are you in relation to me? Where are you in relation to me? Where are you right now in this place? And why aren't you with me? The second word that I want to talk about is are. And where are you? Are. And are is a B verb. It is that sense of what grounds your being and resources who you are. What resources who you are. How do you Know what's important to you. How do you discern that? How do you figure out what the most important things are to you? Well, some of us maybe will write down a bullet list these are the things that are important to me. One exercise I'd have you do is this Um, after chapel or sometime today or tomorrow, sit down with a piece of paper and catalog three basic things one, what have you spent money on this week? Two, who have you spent time with this week? And three, what media sources do you go to for your information? What, what do you spend your money on? Who have you spent time with? And what media sources do you go to for your information? You know, whether it's social media, whether it's news sources, whether it's re- media sites, whether it's magazines you read, what are those media sources? When you gather those things together, I can tell you a lot about a person. I can tell you about who I am, but if you really want to know who I am, talk to my friends. Because my friends will tell you a lot more about that. Here's the thing, is that the things we resource our lives with is is how we become who we are. Human beings are incredibly malleable things. We change based upon our environment like nothing else. One of the things that makes us so amazing in creation is that human beings can live in any ecosystem on the planet. We create atmospheres, we create homes, we we can sustain life. We'll carve out something and make it happen in powerful ways. But we also have the capacity to change and to morph and to transform based upon our contexts that are also beautiful, but also dark. Who you spend your time with, who you read, who you kind of circle yourselves around, you are becoming those things. I am astounded oftentimes with college students when they surround themselves with people that they know are not the best people for their lives. They are not the best people who are growing them into who God has in store for them. But because the prospect of loneliness and the prospect of isolation is so big and the fear of if I don't have them in my life, well, then what do I have? Am I just alone? Am I just isolated now? Is that it? And that dark fear of being alone will keep us in relationships that are toxic and cynical and broken long before we have the capacity to break from them. And we become these things. We suck them up. I mean, there's a reason why Jesus used so many analogies that are agrarian analogies. When we talk about the vine in John 15, when Jesus says that I am the vine and you are the branches, he is talking about the fact that Jesus is plumbing down into the very soil of that which is rich and has nutrients, and is going to suck those things up and propel them into you to feed you with what you need to be fed with, to grow and to bear the fruit that the world needs. But if we are planted in the wrong things, with the wrong people, with the wrong ideas in our heads and in our hearts, we become something else. Um, and the Olympic rainforest, which is near where I live in, in the state of Washington, gorgeous place to go to. There's one section of the rainforest where you have petrified cedar trees. And I don't know if you've ever seen petrified forests or been around petrified wood. Petrified forests occur because you have trees that are growing in a particular place. Their roots are going down into the root structure and seeking water underneath the soil. But over time, because of sedimentation and changes in rock formation, the water becomes filled with minerals. Filled with minerals. And the tree, because it needs water to live, will suck up whatever it can get its hands on. Get its roots on. We're not ants, right? So we're not talking Tolkien. So we're talking roots. So they're, they're su- sucking them up. And, and what do they suck up into them when they get minerals? Well, they're becoming more and more that which they suck into themselves. And over time, slowly but surely, these trees just become stone. That which they've drawn into them, that's what they've become. And you can knock on the wood. I mean, they're just like things of rock over time. Really amazing. And this is what can happen to us. We become stripped and bare before God. And if we do not plant ourselves into that which God needs to nourish us, we become things like rocks. And St. Augustine put it even more pointedly in, in Confessions, where he talks about that you know, my heart is restless until it rests in thee, O oh God. And Augustine goes even further to say that we are that which we love. That which you love is that thing that you will become. We are built for worship. Okay, This is core to Calvin's understanding of the how, how, how human beings become idol-producing factories, that if we don't find the God that we're supposed to worship, we'll create an idol ourselves to worship. And we become those things that we worship and we love. And this is why it becomes so important for you to do an audit of the things that are in your life. What are the things you're surrounding yourself feeding on? Who are the people you're surrounding yourself with? Conversations that you have. I'm astounded how difficult it is today to sit at a, at a dining table in a dining commons and have a conversation around the things that we affirm and we love. Conversations so quickly turn around to things that we hate or don't like. Oh, that professor's awful. Oh, this class is horrible. Oh, did you talk about, Oh, that's just terrible. Oh, that movie's really sucked. You know, and you just kind of... Everything's just about what you don't like, what you don't need, what you don't want. Because affirming something before another human being is incredibly vulnerable. To say what you love is very difficult. I really like that. You know, I really like Taylor Swift's 1989. <laughs> right? Actually, I kind of do, okay, so, <laughs> all right, so, but, but, yeah, so, so, I mean, you, you, to say those things in a crowd can be really challenging. Who we are is what we feed on, who we love, and that's what's also at stake as we look at the man and the woman in the garden. So let's talk about you, okay, not about me, let's talk about you. So where are you, okay, the third part of this, and that the person that you see yourself as and the, the community that you see yourself are vitally important to God. As I said before, you are unique, unrepeatable miracles of God. Core to the reformed tradition of this place, core to how the Canon of Scripture speaks to us, the distinctive nature of a human being is precious before God, is a beautiful thing, is a thing to be worth saving and redeeming. And the place we are in our relationships becomes key to this question. As we heard earlier in Genesis, in Genesis 1:26 and 27, we are created in both the image and likeness of this God as human beings create an image and likeness. The image, the imago dei in the Latin, is this core aspect of who we are that cannot be destroyed in this life. It is this absolute core to who we are that radiates the the, the fact that God is real to the world. You are living testimonies to the world through your animated life and being alive and what shines out of your eyes as as the hope of this world. That's an amazing thing. But we are also made in the likeness of God, not just the image. And the likenesses we hear is our capacity to live into that image in our actions and our behaviors and our relationships. And that tension between the image and likeness is the tension many of us feel every day. It is what Paul is talking about when he says, why is it that I keep doing that which I know I should not do? <laughs> you know, Why do I continue to do those things that I know I should not be doing? It is the likeness that's out of whack with the image that is within us. And that tension is part of what it means to be human. And God's grand question, where are you, is getting at that point. Why man and woman? Why Isha? Why are you so not living into what I have for you? I want you to be with me. I want you to be in relationship with me. Why? Why? And for many people, we have gone so astray from the image of God that is in us, from the call of God that is in us, the promise of God that is in us, and the likeness has become so out of whack what we've become through shame, through disappointments, through, well, it's just it's just whateverism, you know, that we're going to live out our lives. That we don't have the capacity or even think that we can ever get back to that image at all. So we just go on with what we're going to do. This is the way things are. Uh, there's a lake um, right near my house where a lot of runners go. Um, and I was running one day and I'm running and you're kind of going over the crest of a hill and there was this Woman running and she had a dog and she was running with her dog. But I have a chocolate lab who's who's just a horrible dog, but I love him anyway. 90, 98 ninety-eight-pound chocolate lab named Seamus, and he's great. I love him. He's but he's just dumb as a stump. But um but so I'm I'm running with him and we're kinda of running, and he's kind of looking and everything like that, and he's just he's my dog, he's he mirrors me probably. And so we're just, we're running along and this but this woman's running and she's got this Weimer hour. Now, if anybody knows what Weimar hours is as a breed, gorgeous dogs right they've got this gray fur they're sleek then they're streamlined i mean these things are built for running okay and, and she's running with this dog and as they get closer i'm thinking the weimarer's ears are kind of flappy you know what's going on here and as they get closer the woman had taken the dog poop from the dog bagged them up tied them to the dog's collar and so as the dog's running he's whacking himself <laughs> with with his own, with his own dog poop as he's going and and so we're, and I'm, and I'm going past and I'm thinking this gorgeous, streamlined, purebred dog bred for generations to get to this point in history is now being shamed repeatedly in syncopation <laughs> like a metronome as he's going. And for many human beings, that frankly is how we get through our day. We live our lives as these things that for generations have brought us to this place from the very fullness of time. You know, God has brought you to this place. And yet we tie to our very souls the shame and and the disappointments. And we carry it around with us. And we tie it and we whack ourselves in the head with it. And we just try to get through the day. And hoping and praying as we walk across campus, somebody doesn't ask me this question. How are you? Because there are times when you're walking across campus, the last thing you want is to catch eye contact with somebody when you know you're going through that period of time. And they're going to walk up to you and they're going to ask you that question and you have to answer them, right? So it's better to keep my head down and just keep moving as fast as possible because the moment somebody does ask me that question, the dam is going to break. And I don't know how long I can hold it together. Why? Because we live like a will to power. Because we're living on willpower. And that is not how God wants you to live. To be people who are just bearing your shame and just carrying it around and whacking yourselves in the head with it and doing laps getting nowhere in this life. That is not how we're called to be. And part of the reason why we continue on this way is because we honestly believe, like the man and the woman in the garden, as we hear at the end of the narrative in verse 10, is that if God were to see us and ask us the question, where are you? Our response is going to be very similar to theirs. Well, we are afraid. We are afraid that if you showed up and actually asked me that question, what your response would be would be so terrifying. I'd rather keep running. I'd rather keep moving. I'd rather keep bearing the shame myself because I'm so afraid of what would happen if you caught me. Annie Dillard, a wonderful American writer, um, in in one of her memoirs called An American Life, uh, talks about growing up in the city of Pittsburgh. And as she's growing up in Pittsburgh, she's seven years old, and she wakes up one morning. It's a great story. On December morning, she wakes up, and she finds that the whole world is covered with six inches of snow. Gorgeous, six inches of snow. And, and she looks out the window, and what's the first thing a seven-year-old's going to think about snow? Well, two things. First of all, hopefully school's canceled, right? That's your first thing you're thinking. Okay, maybe school's canceled today. Second thing she's thinking of is I want to pack snowballs and throw them at people. So she she wakes up, she goes downstairs, and starts packing snowballs. And this is her story about throwing snowballs at cars. Um, I had just embarked on the ice ball project, writes Annie, and. As I, was, um, as I heard the tire chains come clanking from afar, a black Buick was moving toward us, down the street. We'd all spread out, banged together with my friends, some regular snowballs, took aim, and when the Buick came close, we fired. A soft snowball hit right in the window shield, right in the middle, right before the driver's face, like a smashed star with a hump in the middle. And often, of course, we hit our target, but this time, the only time in my life, the car pulled over and stopped. Its wide black door opened, a man got out, and he was running. And he didn't even close his door, he came running after us, and we ran away from him up the snowy sidewalk in Reynolds Avenue, up the corner, around, he looked back, and he's still after us. He was in city clothes, a suit and a tie, street shoes, any normal adult would have quit, but he had sprung into flight, and he was making his point. This man was gaining on us, a thin man, all action. All of a sudden, we're running for our lives. Wordless, we split up. We're on our turf. We lose ourselves in our neighborhoods. Everyone is for themselves. Paused, and I considered, and I vanished, except for Mikey Fahey. Mikey Fahey is with me, rounding the corner around a yellow brick house, and poor Mikey. He's trailing behind. The driver of the black Buick sensed that we were the two to follow, and he did just that. He chased Mikey and I around a yellow house, up a backward fence, under a low tree, up a bank, around a hedge, down some snowy steps, across the grocer's driveway. We smashed through a gap in a hedge. We went through a back porch, tight between houses on Edgerton Avenue. We ran across Edgerton, down an alley, up a winding wood pile on the hill's other house on the front porch. We ran off Lloyd Street, down a maze of backyards, up the hillside on Wilford and Lang. And he kept chasing us silently, block after block. Chased us silently over picket fences, thorny hedges, around houses, around Garbage cans across streets, and every time I glanced back, choking for breath, I expected he would have quit. But he must have been as breathless as we were. His jacket was straining on his body. It was an immense discovery, pounding in my seven year old head. That an ordinary adult knew that only what I thought only children knew is that you fling yourself fully at what you're committed to, aim yourself, and forget yourself. You can do anything. So Mikey and I are out there running in our neighborhood, out of it. and away! this man is coming, who's chasing us. He's impelling us forward. Every breath is tearing at my throat. We kept running block after block, improvising backyard after backyard, running in a frantic course, choosing it simultaneously, fought, falling always and finding some place to hide. But then all of a sudden, there he was. And this man chased us through this backyard labyrinth. Ten blocks he chased us, caught us by our jackets, and we all stopped. Now at this moment, I pause with Annie Dillard in this story. What happens when God catches us in the great run of our lives? Because that's really what many of us are doing. The idea that we want to keep close to God and want an intimate relationship with God sounds good. It comes out of our lips, we say it in our prayers, we sing it in our praise songs. But what if God gets out of the car? What if in our prayers, as opposed to just hoping maybe, kind of blithely throwing a snowball up, to get God's attention. God does show up. God shows up in our lives. And runs after us. As we drag our shame. As we drag our stories. As we go on this journey. And God grabs us by a coattails What's going to happen. Now in Annie Dillard's story. The story ends where she gets a tongue lashing. By this guy. But she stares up at the end of this story. And she looks at this man. Who's, and, and she can't even hear the tongue lashing. That she's getting from this guy. Because she's so amazed that he would commit all of that. (laughs) To do that, she's in awe. (laughs) She's in awe that someone would commit everything. Leave their car running, run after, tear up his street clothes just to get to her. That itself was awe-inspiring. But the story of the narrative of the gospel is a different one. Because God grabs at us all the time. And we keep on running. (laughs) We keep thinking that that's the game, just to keep running away. Why? Because God wants to know where you are. Wants to be where you are. Actually, Hanini wants to be where you are in a relationship, and that point grounds everything. And it is the question that radiates through the canyons of time and lands with you here today. Where are you with God? Where are you when God grabs a hold of you in your soul? And wants to know right now where you are. Wants to make you right in relationship. Wants to call you out from wherever you are. And to make a life for you that is powerful. That is wonderful. That is glorious. That is beautiful. And it's not something to be laughed off. Or just distance yourself through cynicism and irony. But it's the real thing. And the promise of the incarnation of Christ. Is that's how real it gets. Because the physical hands of God in flesh wrap around us in this moment and call us to be more than just people seeking after brief, fleeting moments of excitement, more than just kind of a wallowing in melancholy in our sickness unto death, more than merely willing our days forward, pushing like like, like Sisyphus up a hill, this boulder, and doing that journey over and over and over again. Because the promise of gospel is that God does not do drive-bys. God's car stops God gets out and God's present with you and with me. And I hope that's your story today. And that's my prayer for you. Where are you today? It's a simple question. It's an easy one just to flip over the page of scripture and go on to chapter four and just keep moving through the canon. But I pray you stop today and ask that question for yourself. And so let me pray with you now. Gracious and loving God, we ask that you fall afresh on us today. Mold us and shape us and fill us, Lord, with your spirit Give us the courage and the wisdom to follow you as you have followed us. Lord, as you ask us as you ask the man and the woman from the beginning of time, where are you? May we answer as you have answered us with Hinini, here I am. Not distant, not running, not escaping, not hiding, but here, waiting and willing to follow you. Embrace us, Lord, and call us to yourself. And may your heartbeat be our heartbeat this day as we go forth. We give you thanks, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thank you.
0: Dr. Cuse, thank you for sharing with us, slowing it all the way down to read three words that fully, that deeply. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you for your time with us Mm -hmm. at not just in chapel today, but over the past days as well. Thank you. Blessings on your ministry. Thank you. Thank you. Blessings to you and your day. Go in peace.